As we begin today, I'm kind of in between a number of uh, special services, so I don't really want to progress and, and lose our flow in the book of Luke, which works out really well. It's like God knew what he was doing. That this is a particular place I think we need a little more study. We need a little extra time. We're going to focus in today on just a couple of verses that we've already looked at, but I want to go a little farther with it. I want to take a little bit of a deeper look. And um, we certainly don't have time uh, in, the, in the short period that we spend together on a Sunday morning uh, to, to be able to really milk it. So hopefully in the process of doing this, in your own personal study, maybe you listen to the podcast, you're able to get a little bit of a development from that, that God will bring to your heart and your mind exactly what you need to be able to fully understand what Jesus is saying in this text and what the Father is saying to each one of us here today. I want to draw your attention to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be back there. So if you don't have a Bible of your own or you don't have one with you, you're going to want one. So we've got some. I think most of them have been picked up because you guys are, are starting to get on this, right? You don't need to hear my opinion. You need to hear God's opinion because that's the opinion that matters. In the entire universe, there are only two opinions that matter. God's because His opinion is reality and yours because it determines what you're going to do with God's. So we need to get into God's Word today. We're going to look at Luke chapter 6 and we're going to pick up with verse 20 and as we have been doing through this period of examining what some have called the Sermon on the Plain or Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount or however you want to view it, as Jesus is teaching here, we want to be able to see the whole picture. And if you have followed anything on social media, you know a lot of times we'll take little clips out of the sermon, little quotes, and we'll put them out there as a, a meme or, or some sort of a, a post to get out to people. We do that with the news, right? You see sound bites pulled out of uh, hearings or, or news events. And very often we can miss the point as we grab onto some pithy little piece. We want to be able to see the full content of what he's saying in this message. So the context here in Luke chapter, chapter 6 is that Jesus has gathered uh, in a high place on the mountainside uh, with his disciples. He's called the twelve aside. Uh, it's, we've been here a little while, so if you have uh, been with us, you, you're probably thinking, man, it seems like it's been a while since he called the twelve disciples. Yes, we're still there. So he, he called out the twelve disciples, named those guys. They go back down to a, a flat, smooth place, probably still on the mountain, but a flat place. And he gathers the rest of his disciples who have come up to that area with him. In all likelihood, the Pharisees and the other naysayers are there around the fringes. Uh, it's not told us that in Luke, but every time Jesus is speaking, they seem to be lurking in the shadows one way or another looking for ways to trip him up. So it's not unrealistic for us to expect that they are in that vicinity. He speaks here specifically of the Pharisees. We'll see that in just a few moments. Um, referring to uh, blind folks leading blind folks. 
In Matthew 15, he actually calls them blind guides, speaking of the Pharisees. So here he's talking about that, and he lays out what Christian conduct looks like. He lays out this idea of blessings and woes, or beatitudes, if you will, and, and uh, warnings. I, I suppose, I haven't really found a word I'm really comfortable with to, to deal with the woes, since we don't use woe a whole lot in our in our modern language, except for when I see my wife and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> different whoa, not the same thing, okay? So as, uh, as Jesus is talking about this, you'll see as we go in it, and bear this in mind as we read it, he's not really condemning them for this. He's basically saying, you're already getting the good stuff now. I feel bad for you because hard stuff's going to come. You're not ready for it. If you're wealthy, man, you got the good stuff. But there's better stuff you're missing out on. Woe to you. Man, I feel bad for you. So as we go through this, we'll read it together. Um, you don't have to stand for this reading, but you do need to be aware of it. So you can follow along. Just so that everybody's on the same page, we have a variety of different Bible translations that you might be using. Um, if you have an electronic device and you're flipping back and forth to different translations. I'll be reading from the New International Version, but the version I'm reading from is the 1984 edition, so some of the words are slightly different. Same translation, but they updated it in 2011, and so um, there are a few uh, adaptations, some of which I like better, most of which I don't, which is why I still use the 84 edition. More information than you wanted? Tough, you got it anyway. Here we go. Luke 6, starting with verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. Might want to keep this in mind as we get into the next several verses here. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe, woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Bear that in mind as we finish. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, your outer garment, don't stop him from taking your tunic or your shirt. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, <laughs> what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. 
but love your enemies. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. Because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Don't judge. And you won't be judged. Don't condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. It'll be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to clearly see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad, a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? I'll show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, <clears throat> the torrent struck the house but couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. As we um, examine this, we're going to dig down a little bit on verses 39 to 42. We've looked at it before, but we're going to see this blind guides thing. And we're going to look at this plank eye thing. And I want you to, to bear in mind what Jesus said about how people treated the prophets and the false prophets because we're going to be dealing specifically with that idea. As, as we go through this, our focus is going to be on our ability to see reality. We talked about that previously, that uh, those who belong to God must view themselves and others through the lens of reality. Today, our core reality is sort of a corollary to that. Our core reality is this. I can't see reality rightly with junk distorting my lens. I can't see reality rightly with junk distorting my lens. Say that with me. 
I can't see reality rightly with junk distorting my lens. All right, so the concept that we're going to see here is that if I allow my vision to be obscured or obstructed by foreign objects, the effect is the same as being blind. In the first portion, in, in uh, verses 39 and 40, Jesus is talking about those who don't know him. Those who don't have a relationship with God, who don't see truth, even though they may claim to. Specifically here, referring to the Pharisees, who are very religious. They're the religious leaders. Today, you might see them as pastors who are leading the way they think rather than the way God thinks. Unfortunately, we have a world that's full of that. Local pastors, very often popular cultural pastors or preachers, those who have radio shows and podcasts and television shows and, and big, big conference ministries and sell a lot of books. And there are some really good ones. But there are some really bad ones out there. Unfortunately, you can't judge that by the popularity. There are a lot of people who sell a lot of books and say a lot of things that sound really good to ears that need to hear something. Our hurt, our sin, our absence of knowledge leaves a void that needs filling. <clears throat> and we can fill it with God's Word, or we can fill it with things that tickle our itching ears that sound really good. For a couple of generations now, we've focused hard, particularly in the realm of education, on the importance of self-esteem. Before that, it was the emphasis on the importance of education, all the way back to capital L liberalism in the previous century and a half, as folks believed, Christians believed, that we could usher in the kingdom by elevating people's economic status, and if we educate them, then they will be, become upwardly mobile, terms that were used later, but that was the same concept, that if we can educate them out of poverty, this was very popular in the time of Charles Dickens in, in uh, Europe, then we will be able to usher in the kingdom of God. Everybody wants God if we could just deal with this hurting, bad system. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we don't, in ourselves, want God. We are made to want God. We have a hole that can only be filled by God, as theologians and philosophers would say. Solomon says God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And yet we can't comprehend what he's doing from beginning to end. Romans 8 says that the sinful heart is unwilling and unable to submit to God. No, no, education is not going to fix it. Self-esteem is not going to fix it. New and better laws aren't going to fix it. All of those things are good and they have their place, but they cannot save us. They cannot get us into a relationship with God. And that is the only thing that has ever mattered. I'm going to say something big. All right, I want, you to, I want you to hear me now when I say this. It's the only thing that has ever mattered in the entire universe. 
I don't think that's really the right reaction. I want to say this again because I want to make sure that we get it. This is big stuff. Only a relationship with God. Only a relationship with God. Now, when you hear this here, there should be a gasp or something, right? Or an amen or something. It is the only thing that has ever mattered in the entire universe. Amen. See, guys, we were created for this. We were created for him. We were created in Genesis 1 in his image, male and female by his design, so that we together and individually can reflect him. And yet we've pursued everything else. From the time the serpent came in and offered us something else that sounded good, but it was a distortion of God's word, we allowed ourselves to be led astray. Now I'm going to try to stick to what I'm doing here. I get a little fired up, and I'm going to do my very best to talk less and read Scripture more. That's a place where you should get an amen. See, now a pastor who really wants God's Word to get out here, this is a good thing. Not because, you know, I'm not going to give you the best that I have, but you don't need the best that I have. You need God's Word. Amen? You need God's Word. Amen? So I'm going to do my very best to try to shut up the most as much as I can there you go. To talk less and read more. Notice I didn't promise I'm going to do well at it. I'm just going to do my best. So, as, uh, as we go here, from the serpent in the garden to the false prophets of Israel, to the false teachers of the New Testament, to those who twist the scriptures today, the enemy has sought to seduce and deceive the people of God. Jesus called them blind guides. At the same time, God's people have also shipwrecked themselves by failing to recognize things in our own lives that cause even us who know reality to live as if we are blinded to it. Today, we want to take some time to address these things in light of what Jesus said in Luke 6, 39-42. Before we do that, I'm going to point out to you, we're going to break this into two pieces. First, we're going to look at the false teachers, false prophets. Uh, I would call them illegitimate influencers, okay? Because it can take a lot of forms. In the Old Testament, we saw prophets. We don't really go around today talking about prophets most of the time, although some folks call themselves that. But those who speak as if they are speaking on behalf of God and yet are not. Those who write a book saying, here's how to live life right. Take this information... And you can help yourself. You can begin to boost your self-esteem by realizing that you are good enough and smart enough and doggone it, people like you. That God values you. That Jesus died on the cross because He didn't want heaven without you. It's all about you. That is a lie from the pit of hell. But we don't call them false prophets. It can take a lot of forms. Anything that takes us away from His Word, anything that takes our eyes off of eternity and focuses as if this could ever be our best life now, is false teaching. We're going to look at that. We're also going to look at at our own blind spots, the areas where we get off track, where stuff gets in our eyes and we don't see rightly. So before we 
before we do, I'm going to have you turn to the book of Jude. <clears throat> Some of you are saying, there's a book called Jude? It's not a Beatles song. Good song. Go all the way to the back, to the book of Revelation. And right before Revelation, it'll probably take about one page, is the book of Jude. There's only one chapter. So we're going to look at pretty much the whole thing. It parallels very much 2 Peter 2. Uh, Peter likely had seen Jude's letter before writing his letter. And there are some similar themes. Uh, the theme is actually similar. And he actually borrows some of Jude's words and adds authority to it. Uh, we understand Jude to be the brother of James and the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. And so as he's writing to the church, he does so with authority. <clears throat> he asserts himself as if he has authority. And the church has always recognized it to be that way. Jude is dealing specifically with false teaching, with godless men. Let's take a look. We'll start with verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, he wanted to be able to, to speak about the good things of God. But instead he had something else. I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. I want to strongly encourage you. Strongly. Did I say strongly? I want to strongly encourage you to underline or mark that in your text. This is a phrase that should be burned into our hearts. I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their portions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound up with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. We have a word for those angels. What is it? Demons. Any angels that ever don't perfectly obey the will of God are here. So when you watch those TV shows where they decide they're going to go outside their orders, eh, those are demons. Or just bad writing. In a similar way, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. 
They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They're clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers, fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. This is another place where I would strongly, I'm going to repeat that a couple of times, urge you to mark that in your Bibles. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. In other words, show mercy, but don't get yourself caught up in being like that. Don't let their sin drag you down as you're trying to help them. Be wise. I'll finish with Jude's doxology here. Because anytime we get a chance to praise the Lord with the scriptures, we should do it. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. False teachers, false prophets, illegitimate influencers of all kinds, value certain things over what God would have them value. We can recognize them when we are keen enough to see what their priorities are. When you see a preacher who is fixated on gaining reputation, run. When you see someone who is fixated on building their brand, run. These should be red flags for us. Don't misunderstand. Popularity isn't in itself bad. I follow a number of popular preachers. Chuck Swindoll, as you know, is one of my favorites. Tony Evans, one of my favorites. James McDonald, one of my favorites. All of them have very large ministries. But they're not about the large ministry 
and the branding and the reputation. They're about the Word of God transforming people's lives, not for their wealth and profit, but for the glory of God. When Rick Warren uh, published uh, The Purpose Driven Life, and it just went bonkers as far as the book sales went, and all of a sudden, this pastor who had grown and had done a lot of things and was you know, uh, ministering well in a congregation that had become uh, one of the largest in America, all of a sudden, he had millions of dollars pouring in. And it scared him. He did not want to be corrupted by this wealth. So he and his wife, Kay, said, we're not going to touch this money for a year. We're going to pray about it. We're going to seek the wisdom of elders. And as they did, they determined that they were no longer going to take any salary from the church. In fact, they had made enough money that they took that and paid back all that the church had paid them in salary for the past 25 years. And then began to build a foundation to deal with AIDS in Africa and to do a number of other things. Rick Warren wanted a lot of people to buy the book so that a lot of people could see the truth, not so he could pad his pockets. Don't be deceived into thinking it's not a temptation. It always is for everyone. Some handle it well. Some prioritize their things over God's things. Let's take a look at what those things are. As we see here in Jude, and, and we can um, see from some other texts as well that I won't have you turn to. Some of them are listed for you above. These false teachers, false prophets, value their reason over God's revelation. They value their reason over God's revelation. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says to trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and in all your ways to submit to Him. And if you do that, He'll straighten your paths. But false teachers play upon our understanding. This makes sense. This sounds good. If I promote this uh, particular truth, I can gain a following. It was true in the New Testament. It was true in Israel. It is true today. I can make it sound good. I can present logic that sounds great to your flesh. But God has revealed himself in his word. And whenever we prioritize our own reasoning over the revelation of God in His Word, we are on a bad path. That path ends up in a pit. Whenever you encounter those who would lead in this way, run. False teachers, false prophets, illegitimate influencers value their dreams over God's decrees. They value their dreams over God's decrees. That's why Jude calls them here dreamers. They have visions, so to speak. Now, some of them may actually be having visions, but they're not from God. Run. Many of them like to say that. That's become the Christian cop-out in evangelical world. If we don't have a scriptural answer, then we say, well, God just laid that on my heart. The Spirit just told me. Because who can argue with that, right? Well, if God told me this, it must be right. God told you what you need to know already. Amen. Now, I want to I balance that. 
Because Paul calls us to test prophecies, not to disregard them. But when someone speaks because of a vision or a dream or something that they uh, believe that they've received from God, weigh it against the Scriptures to the extent that it matches the Scriptures. You can trust that it is from God. To any vision or dream that seeks to go beyond the Scriptures and especially runs counter to them, run. Bad, false teachers. And a true teacher of the Word will never... Now, I don't use always or never very often, right? Will never ask you to believe their opinion, their reasoning, or their own personal revelation, dreams or visions, or God told me, over the Word of God. Never will a true teacher of the gospel ever ask you to do that. If they do, what should you do? Run. They value their reason over God's revelation, their dreams over God's decrees. They also value their pleasure over God's precepts. They value their pleasure over God's precepts. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the scripture. It's the longest psalm. And it is basically a love song to God's word. Lord, how I love your precepts. How I cherish your law. If I want to keep my mind pure, i got to get stuck in your word. i got to spend all my time here. David wrote it. He would know when he failed to do it, he got sideways. And it cost him for the rest of his life. And yet, these false teachers pursue things according to their desires. I mentioned the temptation toward wealth be the temptation or power or fame. Things that make me feel good. Very often even trying to process my own woundedness. We'll get to that in a little bit. But even trying to process my own woundedness, I can build a following. And I can use what I call ministry in serving others really to serve myself. To try to make myself feel better. To deal with the things I didn't deal with before. They value their pleasure, their desires over God's precepts, God's law, His commands. False teachers, you can recognize them because they also value their charisma over God's character. They value their charisma over God's character. Very seldom, in fact, I would go so far as to say almost never, do you find a popular teacher who doesn't have a charismatic, strong personality. David Koresh, Charles Manson, Jim Jones, Joseph Smith. There are people who gather a following because they're good speakers. They could tear up in a TED Talk. Maybe they're a Tony Robbins kind of person. And they're great speakers. They have powerful personalities. And usually they're really good looking people, right? So, have you ever noticed you don't see a lot of megachurch pastors that are ugly? Why is that? Now, I don't want to throw all pastors of big churches in the same vat here. It's not the same thing. But if I'm going to gain a following, and I'm going to get a big TV ministry, but I got a face for radio, then it's going to be a lot harder. 
kidding aside, we get caught up in personalities. We get caught up in marketing. Don't let yourself get sucked in by leaders who sound good and look good and market well and have a great web presence. None of those things are bad. Don't, you don't have to run from somebody because they're too pretty. But don't run to them for that either. When they value their charisma, and you can recognize this most often in their followers, because, you know, wow, what a great preacher. If you're going to church because of a great preacher, you've missed the point. A preacher is a sinner just like you and me with a great God. And when we get fixed on His Word, that's when we're on the right path. All of the other things here are a bad path, and they will lead us into a pit. When you see teachers like that, what should you do? Run. Run. Now, in addition to the serpent and the false prophets leading us away from God's Word by distorting God's Word, we see also that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we see also that all through Israel's history, those who were supposed to lead let their own sin and their own woundedness get in the way, and it broke them and messed them up. I've been spending time in, in First and Second Samuel lately, and King Saul was, a, was anointed by God. He was the chosen one of God to be that first king of Israel. The whole situation was sinful. God didn't want him to have a king other than himself. But he indulged them and he chose Saul. And Saul was God's man for the job. And we see that he was qualified. He seemed to want to follow God. And yet, he allowed his own fears to overtake him. When he was called to be named king, he hid. He hid. This isn't a guy who's looking for fame, but once he got there, his fears that he wasn't good enough, his low self-esteem, if I can be so bold, caused him to try to prove himself. Caused him to seek God on his terms rather than on God's terms. And it cost not only him, but the nation. And God rejected him as king. And God named David. We all know David. David was perfect, right? He's a great guy. No, no, no. He messed up with Bathsheba, right? And, and killed her husband. No. It's bigger than that. David, from the beginning, begins to do things, even though he loves God and he humbles himself, he, be, he does things that God has specifically forbidden. And he doesn't get it dealt with. God specifically forbids the kings of Israel long before he ever names a king. Says, you will never amass wives to yourself, to yourselves, or amass horses like putting together an army in a way that's going to build up your strength. You're not to build up your own wealth. David's going on his own strength, and he's just picking up wife after wife after wife, just like everybody else. He's not even thinking about it because he's so influenced by the ungodly culture that led up to his time. But David's sins, including and specifically his adultery with Bathsheba and the murderous cover-up that followed, led to strife in his family, including his own son trying to usurp, uh, to usurp him, even assassinate him. It followed David for the rest of his days. Now, Solomon, 
the wisest of all, becomes king after David. But it ends up being a divided kingdom because of David's blind spots. And as he doesn't deal with his own sin until it's too late, the ripple effect goes into Solomon's life. And as wise as Solomon is, he actually leads the people of God into the worship of idols. How could you be so wise and do this? Dude had 700 wives. That might make me crazy too. But no, sorry. Because one is more than enough. She's looking right at me right here in the front row. Okay, but seriously. He had 700 wives. What's the problem with that? Obvious problems that we can recognize in our culture. But the bigger problem. The bigger problem is that he was outside of God's commands. God's intent, his design from the beginning, one man, one woman, forever for life. That was God's design. Everything else outside of that distorts the picture of who God is and how he relates to his people, and it destroys God's plan for us. Now, obviously, God's not done with us, just like he wasn't done with David, he wasn't done with Solomon. And God allows him to go through these things, but it caused blind spots. He also commanded that the men of Israel were never to marry foreign wives. Not because of racial things or ethnic things. There is only one race. There's only one race. Genetically, scientifically, there is only one race. Biblically, there is only one race. This was not an ethnic issue. It wasn't the purity of, of Israel in an ethnic sense. It was the purity of of their devotion to God. And by marrying foreigners with their foreign gods, they were introducing into the culture a plurality that God did not intend. That happened with Solomon. And he brought his wife's gods. And they began to worship other gods. And this all led to the complete division of the kingdom and a chaotic history until eventually that carries on, those blind spots in them carried on until Israel was banished from the presence of God. Israel and Judah both end up in exile. God will still keep his promises to Israel, as Paul said. That's coming. But not the way he had, had shown them, because they didn't follow that way. Now, as we look at this, that's a picture of us as well. These men had planks in their eyes. They didn't deal with their sin. They didn't deal with the woundedness of a bad relationship with their father. And all of that created blind spots that they ignored that ended up costing not only them, but those they sought to lead. It was still their job to lead they needed to serve others in leadership, but they couldn't do it rightly because they couldn't see reality rightly. They had junk in their eye. Stuff that we need to watch out for. Beware of believers' blind spots, or in keeping with what Jesus said in the text, problematic planks. Notice in verses 41 and 42, Jesus says, excuse me, uh, <clears throat> where'd it go? I got it here in front of me. 
in uh, verses 41 and 42, after talking about the, the, the blind guides, he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Right? So we can see that, and we immediately connect that with the judging earlier on. Yes, it is connected, but not perhaps in the way we think. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see that there's a cotton-picking log in your own eye? Hypocrite. If you want to help your brother, my paraphrase, you can't do it until you get the junk off your lens. Because you can't see the speck rightly. I wear contact lenses and very often they get goofy and, and I can't see anything. And I'm like reaching for stuff. I don't know where it is because I can't see right. That happens to us spiritually. I'll say just at the end of this week, I was talking to a, a, a friend here uh, and I started out requesting prayer for a friend who needed prayer and I, I know that this uh, friend was able to pray for them and knows the situation and it took moments, only a moment for me to get sidetracked into venting judgmental junk. I wasn't helping anybody. That was a result of my own plank. That friend's here in the room, and I apologize to you, and thank you for convicting me of that. But even after my friend said, hey, I got my own stuff to deal with, I got it for a second. I went right back to my plank again, my own blind spots. And I let my heart get irritated where I should have been compassionate. Started out that way and got waylaid, just like these kings of Israel. We need to beware of these blind spots. Let me give you four. Four blind spots that, that we see here. For the sake of time, I won't take you to the passages above, but I want to point out Galatians 6, uh, 1 through 10, and one of the things that Paul is saying right at the very beginning in uh, verses 1 and 2 is that we should be seeking to restore brothers and sisters who are in sin. When we see someone in sin in the family and we love them, the loving thing to do is to help them. When you see someone with a piece of wood in their eye, the loving thing to do is to say, hey, let me help you get that piece of wood out of your eye. But I can't do that if I've got an even bigger piece of wood in my own eye or I'm going to hurt us both. I'm not going to do the job well and I'm going to cause harm to you. Ephesians 4 is a great chapter. I've only listed 17 to 32 for you, but the entire chapter is very useful for you. Here are four. Four things that can cause us to have blind spots, that can be planks in our eye. The first is unresolved wounds. Unresolved wounds. Each of us has a wound. Many, many wounds in reality. None of our parents are perfect, so we have wounds from our home of origin. I have caused wounds to my children, and they have to deal with that. When we don't resolve these things, they tend to become the lens through which we see everything. If we had bad teaching as a, as a young person growing up, that bad teaching becomes a lens through which we see everything. You've probably heard the, the saying, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Our wounds tend to color the way we look at others, ourselves, and the world around us. And so if I'm viewing things from my woundedness, if I'm operating out of those wounds, 
then it's going to distort how I approach things. The world around me is not a nail, and I need to be mindful of that. Unresolved wounds cause blind spots. Also, unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin. Jesus said, if you've got something wrong, before you come to worship, lay it down. We read in Psalm 24 that if you're going to come and ascend the hill of the Lord, if you're going to come to worship, have clean hands and a pure heart. That doesn't mean any of us are perfect. We're not going to be this side of heaven. But don't leave it unresolved. Don't have secrets. Don't have those sins that are plaguing you and you're like, I don't want anybody to know about it, so I'm just going to pretend it's all good. And it's kind of, you know, it's not really the worst sin in the world. It's not like the dragon's going to burn the village. It's, it's a baby dragon. It's my baby dragon. I have to protect my, my cuddly little pet dragon. But the dragon still grows up to destroy us all. We can't have unconfessed sin or we will have blind spots in our lives. And I am convinced that one of the reasons that God has allowed Israel's history to go the way it did and to be recorded for us the way it is is so that you and I can see in the kings of Israel, in the men of old, just how much our sinful blind spots don't just plague us, but they taint an entire legacy for generations to come. We need to be mindful of that. Unresolved wounds, unconfessed sin. There's another hard one. Unforgiven offenders. Unforgiven offenders. I think everyone here is familiar with the Lord's Prayer as, as uh, the Lord taught us to pray in Matthew. And you notice at the end of the prayer, whether you say Debts or trespasses, it's the same thing. Lord, forgive us as we forgive others. If I don't forgive that person who has wounded me, I am in direct violation of what Jesus preaches right here in Luke 6. I need to love my enemies, not judge them. God will judge them. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Your job is to forgive, even as God in Christ forgave you. Sounds really good from a pulpit, right? What about that spouse that cheats on you? What about that drunk that killed your loved one in the car? What about that person that abused you? That sexually assaulted you? That pastor who took your money and cheated you? That corrupt cop who profiled you? That bully that shamed you, caused you pain? Yes, every single one of them too. Jesus wasn't kidding. I can't see reality rightly. Living in the reality of a God who loved me so much 
to send his own son to die for me while I was still sinning against him and in open rebellion against God. I can't live in that reality and see it rightly while I'm holding on to this bitterness toward others. No matter how justified it might seem in my flesh. Unresolved wounds, unconfessed sin, unforgiven offenders, unreleased pride. I am increasingly convinced as I grow older and God humbles me more and more. And as I read the scriptures over and over and find things that I thought I knew that maybe I didn't know as well as I thought. That pride lies at the base of everything. High self-esteem, low self-esteem, both pride. Jesus calls us to stop with the self-esteem altogether. It's not about me. When I don't feel I'm good enough, I'm not thinking of myself rightly. I'm viewing myself according to my standards. When I need to be viewing myself according to the grace that God has given me. I need to be viewing myself according to that. Not thinking of myself more highly than I ought. That's obvious pride. We get that. What we struggle with sometimes is all of the low-end pride that still keeps the focus on me. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's always been about Him. And the devil loves to swing that pendulum from you will be like God to you can never be good enough for God. Luther said, yeah, when the devil comes and tells you that, uh uh-huh, yes, you are right. But I know one who has made payment in my place. I know worse things about myself than you will ever know about me. I think that's true for each one of us. Get the focus off of ourselves. Let's look heavenward. I want to draw your attention to... Um, Brad, if you can skip ahead for me to the memory verse, we'll come back to that last part with the blanks. I want to draw your attention to the memory verse, which is not in your program because I put the wrong verse in your program. It's Romans 12.3. I want to encourage you to memorize this. You can write it in your program, or at least write the reference down. Romans 12, 3, Paul writes, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Boom, right there we get it, okay? Don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Don't think too highly of yourself. But we don't get the rest of it very well. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Not debasing yourself, but seeing reality rightly according to, or in accordance with, the faith God has distributed to each of you. By God's grace, He allows you to see truth. He's given us His Word. If you are in Christ, you are whole and accepted, and you are viewed by God exactly the same in the spiritual realm as Jesus Christ Himself, because you are in union with Him. And it no longer matters whether you're any good or not, because He's everything. And when Jesus is everything, I can't view myself more highly than I ought. And I don't ever need to view myself lowly again. Because it was never about me in the first place. 
guys. If we're going to kill pride, if we're going to release our pride, we need to view ourselves with sober judgment according to the faith God gives us by the grace He has poured out on us and the revelation of Himself in the Scriptures. Last thought. Both pits and planks are issues of theology and discipleship. Both pits and planks are issues of, of theology and discipleship. We either don't know God rightly or we don't submit to Him fully. That's what it comes down to. Either we don't understand who He is rightly, we've gotten our view of God from our parents, our grandparents, the world around us, the caricatures we see on television, maybe a teacher who talks about the Jesus freaks out there. You know, we, we get confused because we're so bombarded with the world's way of thinking. And Paul's called us, just in the verses before this, to renew our minds. Fill our minds with the Word, and we can be transformed by the Holy Spirit from the inside out. Both pits and planks are issues of theology and discipleship. i got to know Him as He is, not as I wish He were, not, I believe God's like this, or my God wouldn't do that. No, what does God say in His Word? And then I need to realize He's God and I'm not. I need to just, not just hear it, I need to do it and obey. Why does it matter? Because my life can only be as good as my ability to see reality. If I view things differently than God does, I'm headed for a crash. If my vision of reality is impaired by my own junk, I will never be able to get forward because it's exactly the same effect as if I was totally blind and never knew it. What difference does it make in my daily walk? It changes the way I treat people. It changes the way I interact with God. If I walk around in blindness, I mean, if this were your physical walk and you're walking around and I got blind spots, you know, I, I got cataracts coming up, I know I'm going to need surgery next year sometime. So when that happens, my vision starts to go. I can do something about it because I'm aware of it. If I don't know it, I can get hurt before I realize. The same is true with us spiritually. Deal with the blind spots now. Because if I don't, the cost is high. Understand as we wrap this up that I can't see reality rightly with junk distorting my lens. Never can. So it's important for us as we do this to call out, as David did, for God to create in us a clean heart, to renew within us a right spirit. David says in Psalm 51, Lord, if you'll restore to me the joy of your salvation, if you'll, if you'll just, Lord, not turn your back on me, not only forgive me, have compassion on me, Lord, yes, but cleanse me and I'll be clean. I can't do it myself, Father. But if you will cleanse me, if you will take away this sin, not just the guilt of the sin, but the sin itself, take the junk out of my eye for me. You do the surgery, Lord. Create in me a new person, a soft, responsive heart to your word, a new spirit that will sustain me and make me steadfast. And I will proclaim you to sinners. 
I will sing praise to you. And I will never stop declaring the reality of who you are. If we're going to declare God's reality, we need to see it rightly. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, <clears throat> you have given us truth. And God, <clears throat> I stand before your people today as the chief of sinners. There's not a person in this room, there's not a person on this planet stumbles in their heart more than I do. So God, as I speak to your flock, I pray with this body for even myself, hoping that we all pray it together. Create in me a clean heart. Create something beautiful out of my ugliness. Create a miracle because I can't do it in natural law or my flesh. Father, do something real, powerful, and lasting and remind each of us you're not finished yet. I pray this in the name of your Son, who will finish the work in us. Amen.